Well, very often when we've had dedications in the past, we've done a, a, a topical uh, teaching rather than just carrying on with our, our journey through the Bible. We are going through the book of Genesis at the moment, verse by verse. Um, and if you're visiting and you'd like to see what we've been doing, it's all up on the website. You can go back and look at uh, the, the studies we've had, but we'll continue with Genesis, uh, Lord willing, next week. I'm uh, just looking at the, the historical events that took place, which really led to the birth of the nation of Israel uh, and the reasons that God engineered that. This morning, what I want to do is to to look at, really, in the, the light of this act of dedication that we've uh, seen witness this morning, just summarizing as the choice, because, you know, we all have a choice. Uh, we, we get to choose about all sorts of things in our lives, but you'll see where we're, we're going with this as we, we start to unfold it. If you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, the Scriptures will be on the screen, but we're going to be going into Proverbs chapter 30. And this is just an incredible chapter. Now, there's a few wonderful little discoveries that we're going to make at the beginning of this. And then we're going to get on and we're going to talk a little bit more about why this applies so much to the situation this morning. In Proverbs chapter 30, it starts with a what almost seems like a riddle. The words of Agar, the son of Jacheh, even the prophecy. The man spoke unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Ukal. And we're thinking like, what does that mean? And it is one of those kind of things that a lot of commentators over the years have looked at this and they've tried to understand who's speaking, who's he speaking about, what's it really saying, what is this prophecy that's referred to, and so on. But, you know, it's very often not that complicated. When we get things in the Bible that maybe on the surface we don't understand, because we have to recognize that we read a translation. The original text of the Bible was given to us for the Old Testament, predominantly in Hebrew, a few portions of Aramaic in there. And the New Testament, of course, written in Greek. So it's a language that we typically don't speak, but we live in a day and age where we've got all sorts of tools and we can find out what these words actually mean in their original languages. And when we do that, actually, it all starts to make a little bit of sense. So the first thing we have is the words of Agar. So who is it that's speaking? That's kind of a a question we want to just ask first of all. Well, the word or the verb Agar, it just means to collect in the Hebrew. So another way of, of translating this would be the words of the collector, Well, that really shouldn't come as a a surprise to us in a sense because this is the book of Proverbs. We know Proverbs was written by Solomon. We also know if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, which was also written by Solomon, he, in in that book, introduces himself as in the Hebrew, it's the the kololeth or the preacher. So Solomon gives himself different titles depending on the circumstantial situation. Here it's just the words of the collector. So it seemingly is still Solomon that's speaking here. But the question then is, what was Solomon a collector of? Well, we find through the book of Proverbs, a number of times it's mentioned that he was a collector of dark sayings. Now, that's not dark sayings or something sinister, but it's things that maybe we need to dig a little deeper to understand. Really, it's wisdom that Solomon was a collector of. Solomon had that great opportunity where God said to him, you know, what would you like? I'll give you anything you want. And if we were faced with that, you know, what would we, you know, ask for? Maybe wealth or riches or fame, prosperity or for our family or... Well, Solomon says, God, I want wisdom. Because you've given me this, this people to rule over. You've given me this nation. And I want to do well. 
they're your people and I want to do a good job. And so God blesses him, not just with wisdom, but also with fame and riches and wealth and so on. There's no doubt about it that Solomon was a wise man. You look at some of the things that he says. You read through Proverbs, you read through Ecclesiastes. He had incredible understanding. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes is amazing. You just go through that. And there are so many scientific facts that he speaks about. The hydrocycle, for example, and many other things that weren't fully understood until many, many centuries later. But Solomon speaks about it, records it, details it. He speaks about, you know, the rivers all flowing into the sea, but the sea not being full, and then kind of goes on to expound that. So Solomon, clearly a wise man, but he collected these things. He was curious. He, it just, he liked this whole idea of thinking. You know, we, we live in a world today that doesn't like thinking. We have entertainment industries, amusement industries set up to stop us thinking. Uh, a muse, when you prefix the word with A, it means not. I'm sure you're familiar with that. And a theist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. So a muse, muse meaning to think, is just not to think. And that's what the world tends to throw at us all the time. You don't have to think anymore. All the thinking's done for you. Solomon liked thinking. And the Bible actually exalts us, as we'll comment in a moment, that we should be thinking as well. Uh, Solomon, by the way, was not his birth name. Um, We're familiar uh, with a number of people in Scripture that are given different names at different points in their lives. Uh, but Jedediah was actually the name that was given to him, was confirmed by Nathan, the prophet Nathan, in 2 Samuel 12, 25. So Solomon was another name that was given to him. And you may have different names for your children as well, as well as their natural names. Sometimes you have little nicknames for them or things we call them, you know. We're told the words of Agar, the son of Jacke. Well, if Agar is Solomon... The son of, well, we know that Solomon's father was David. So does this fit with our text? Well, yes, because if we look at the name of Jacket, it simply means the obedient, or an obedient one. Well, what a, a great title of David. I mean, David, yes, he made mistakes. But he was, we're told in Scripture, he was a man after God's own heart. So it makes perfect sense. So the words of the collector, the son of the obedient. But then we've got this, but even the prophecy... And so now we're given the prophecy. You notice know, the colon there in the text. And this next section, in a sense, is the prophecy. And it, again, it reads a little strangely the way it's translated for us. But the man spoke unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Ukel. Well, again, what, is, what does this mean? Well, we look at that name, Ithiel, to start with. And you may recognize that L ending. If you find a Hebrew word with an L ending, it's the name of God. And Daniel, God is my judge, and you know, so on. Elohim, the name of God. And so we find that Ithiel just means God comes. It's really a synonym of Emmanuel, God with us. Which is just interesting. And then we look at Ukal. And it's a Hebrew verb which means to be consumed. Well, that makes it very, very interesting. Because if we break this down and put it into a a more readable sentence for us, it would be the words of the collector, the son of the obedient, even the prophecy. The man spoke concerning the God who comes, even the God who comes to be consumed. What a statement found here in the book of Proverbs. Because that is the Christian gospel. The God himself came to this world to lay down his life. So that whosoever, and that's incredible because we started this by saying 
What I'm talking about this morning is choice. And that whosoever, that's the choice. You don't have to. There's no obligation. But God has gone to extraordinary lengths to make a way for anyone who wants to, to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin? No. Sin's not after you. Sin's already quite happy with you where you are. No, we, we need salvation from God's wrath. Because the Bible makes it very clear that God is a just God. And would we want a God that's not just? Of course not. God is a just God. And therefore, the Bible makes it very clear we've all fallen short of God's standard. And so, if God is just and we have broken his laws, then God has to judge us. And yet, as this verse tells us, and we find reiterated through the whole of the Bible... God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son. The God who comes. The God who comes to be consumed. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. See, God's wrath is then turned away from us because Jesus takes that wrath upon himself. Again, let me just remind you, this was penned around about 1000 B.C., but clearly, again, is the, the Christian gospel given to us. And it's a prophecy, as we've just said, of all that would happen, the heart of the, the Christian gospel. And we go into the second verse, and we see more of this kind of unraveling, because it is, the way it's translated, surely I'm more brutish than any man. I have not the understanding of a man, neither... I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the holy. But again, we need to just look a little deeper in this. But that word brutish... In the Hebrew is a word that we think of brutish as something that is kind of cruel or harsh or, or something like that. But it simply means carnal, of the flesh. That, that's what the, the word actually means in the Hebrew. Really, it's saying, I am as much of the flesh as any man. Well, that's a true statement of Jesus Christ. Because he became flesh. God became flesh. He gave up all the majesty, the glory, the wonder of heaven to come to this earth to become just like we are. And Jesus was in every respect as we are yet without sin. And that's how he was able to therefore go and become a sinless substitute for us. And he carries on and says, I have not the understanding of a man. Well, that's exactly what the text says, except the Hebrew for a man that's there is Adam. Really, the statement there is quite simple. It's not limited to the understanding of Adam. Because Jesus was not limited to the understanding of Adam. God is not limited to the understanding of Adam. God is outside of time. He knows all things. And this is where we start to look at this whole area of choice a little bit closer. And you start to see that on one side you have God, and on the other side you have us. And we have to start to think about where we're going to put our trust. Because God already states here that he's not like Adam. He's not like just an ordinary man. His understanding is not like that. God's understanding is way above all of these things. In the book of Isaiah, we're told that God's thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. He says, I need the learned wisdom. It's effectively, I did not need to be taught wisdom. And there's nor have knowledge of the 
holy. That nor in the Hebrew is, again, it's inserted by the translators for readability, but not actually that negative connection in the Hebrew. But really the idea is, nor did I need knowledge of the holy. God knows everything about everything. You know, we are, as it says in Corinthians, seeing through a glass darkly. We don't understand the whole picture yet. We don't understand all there is to know about God, and we will never know all there is to know about God. God is infinite. But this is kind of the picture that this chapter starts to paint. It speaks about a God who came to be consumed for us. But a God who knew before the beginning of time everything. And then we have these challenging questions, which are really just drawn from other portions of Scripture. Who has ascended up into heaven or descended? Well, none of us have had that opportunity. I mean, in the the New Testament, we've got an example of Paul who we find is caught up to the third heaven. And he's so blown away by the experience, by what he hears and sees, he can't even articulate it. He says, I can't even put into words the things that I saw. You know, we don't have in our dimensions, the way that we live, our, our current sphere of things. We don't have that opportunity of just going into heaven. And who's gathered the wind in his fists? These verses start to bring us down to size a little bit, don't they? Start to realize, actually, we don't know everything about everything. Who's bound the waters in a garment? Who's established the ends of the earth? A lot of questions put to you here then. What is his name? And what is his son's name? if thou can tell. You know, do you think all this is just accident? It's just chance? How did all this happen? How did we get the world in which we live? I mean, it's so ludicrous to believe that all of this could have come about by random processes and time and chance. It is insulting to people's intelligence. You know, none of us have attained to that level of knowledge and understanding. Even just these few verses here. And God is pulling this challenge to all of us. You know, it's really, what do you know? And where did you learn it from? There's actually a a branch of science known as epistemology. And it really is the study of knowledge, its scope and its limits and so on. And what the Bible exhorts us to think soberly, and particularly in regard to the choices we make. You know, the world often speaks about, you know, the Bible as if it's a a narrow-minded, dogmatic kind of a proposition. And yet you think what they are trying to sell us. They're trying to sell us a philosophy that says, don't question. Follow this way. This is the only way you're allowed to consider. In fact, it's the only way we're going to teach you. And if you even veer to the right or to the left, you could lose your job, you could lose your career. You have to believe, you have to follow the status quo. That's the world's way. The world would love us not to think. The Bible says, no, stop, think. Because there's some choices we need to make that are very important. You know, and the question is, you know, whom or in what do we trust? My question again, and I've put this many times, is do you believe the Bible's true? Some will say yes, some will say no. Well, if not, what is your foundation? I've put this question to people that I work with. I said, do you believe the Bible's true? No. Okay, so what do you believe? Why do you believe it? What's your foundation? Is it your own opinion? (laughs) That's dangerous ground, isn't it? We all know, even as men, and we have to admit it, that our opinion is not always right. My wife tells me that frequently. And she's right. Our opinions are not always right. In fact, often we find that 
our opinions on things are wrong. And our opinions change over time, don't they, as well? And the reason our opinions change is because we get a bit of information that we didn't have before. Something that we didn't know that, ah, actually that, yeah, now I understand them. It is dangerous ground to trust your own opinion, but the worst, or worse than that, is the opinion of others because you don't know where they're coming from or what their agenda is or what they're trying to say to you. And it amazes me, the people that look at Christians and say that we are narrow-minded or that we've been brainwashed or led down this particular path and, really? What's the option? If you, if, if that's not your, your ground, if the Bible is not your foundation, then you've just followed the opinions of other people and you're hoping that they've got it right. But why are they any better than you? Right, so it's the worst thing. The Bible says this chapter carries on, just every word of God is pure. Every word of God is trustworthy. It's reliable. God doesn't lie. He doesn't need to lie. The Bible doesn't need to be changed. It's not a science textbook that's going to be updated when we discover something new. Every statement the Bible makes about the world in which we live is accurate, is true, it's been proven to be so from a scientific basis, from a historical basis, from an archaeological perspective. I've got books on the back, Bill Cooper, those banners we've got there. Bill has spent a lifetime digging into the authenticity of the Bible, showing that the things that the Bible states are absolutely true historically. And the critics have been left with egg on their faces because they've said, oh, well, this couldn't have happened and suddenly we discover something. Oh, well, it did happen. Just as the Bible said. Every word of God is pure. You know, that's a great foundation to build a life upon. And for Ash and Laura this morning, that's the foundation that they want for Elijah's life. And, and there's another part to this because this verse also says that he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. That is the, the one who is all-knowing, who is trustworthy, offers to be a shield of protection. Doesn't that sound like a really good thing? But notice there that there is a condition. It's unto them that put their trust in him. You know, these things are there, they're available. We can avail ourselves of these blessings if we want. God doesn't deceive, he doesn't try and paint a picture in a different way to try and draw us in. God tells us how it is in the word of God. But we're told that he's a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And this morning in dedicating Elijah, we're praying that God will be that shield for Elijah until Elijah can come to that place of making a decision himself. And the reason we dedicate children as opposed to baptizing infants is quite simply because baptism for a child has absolutely no value whatsoever. I was baptized as a child. I'm not, it doesn't worry me that that happened. I don't think, well, you know, why did my parents do that? At the time, my parents didn't realize. It was just the done thing. I'm sure many of you have been in the same position. But you see, your relationship with God is precisely that. It's your relationship with God. And so, okay, it's a baptism as a child. It's maybe a nice kind of occasion, but it really means nothing. The reason we dedicate is because we're acknowledging that a child is not in that position to make a decision themselves. And nor can we make a decision for them that would change the rest of their lives. Every individual is free to make their own choice. Again, the subject of this message. The Bible also says, verse 6 here, this chapter 30 of Proverbs, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee. Now we found a liar. We could spend a long time looking at people who have tried to add to God's words. 
Oh, God didn't really mean that. He meant this. Or, well, that was okay back in that day, but now things have changed. Really? A God who is outside of time wasn't aware what was going to happen? No, no, no. Come on. Think about that. No, no. People try and change what the Bible says to suit themselves, to try and give them justification for what they want to do. You only got to look at what's going up in London today to see that. So what is the choice? Well, either as we've done through our act of dedication for Elijah today to entrust our lives and eternity to one who knows everything and has promised to protect us, that sounds like a pretty good option to me. Or, this is the, the, the flip side of that, entrust our lives to our own wisdom. You've got a choice. You can go down either of these paths. And by trusting your own wisdom, of course, you can draw from all sorts of people. There's all sorts of great minds that have uh, graced this planet through the history. But you've only got to look at the the fruit of so many of these lives, so many of these so-called wise people or wealthy people or rich people or whatever. What really did they have? How did it help them? And, And the big question that still needs to be answered, what impact did it have regarding their eternal destiny? No, no, for me, for my family, for Ash, for Laura, and for Elijah, we've entrusted our lives to one who knows everything and has promised to protect us, to be a shield. That sounds like a good choice to me. The chapter goes on. I'm just going to read through a few of these verses because there's just interesting comparisons here. Solomon now says, there's two things I've required of thee, just speaking to God. He says, deny me them not before I die. He says, remove far from me vanity and lies. And maybe that's a question or a statement of saying, I just don't want to get anywhere near politics. I don't know. <laughs> Give me neither poverty nor riches, he says. Feed me with food convenient for me. And this is the reason he says it. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and esteem and take the name of my God in vain. Really, what Solomon is saying is, Lord, don't give me so much that I forget about you because I'm comfortable in my life. Or don't take everything away so I have nothing and end up cursing you. That's effectively what he's saying. And really, he's underlining here that the point that is most important to him is that relationship with God. A lot of us, if we were given the option, I'm sure we'd jump at that chance to to go for riches. And we went down to Deal last weekend and driving up the A3. uh, We followed a Lamborghini for most of the the way up the A3. We picked it up just past uh, the roundabout, just beyond Petersfield. And then we followed it all the way up through Guildford and and it pulled off at uh, Wisley Gardens. And a couple of times, this uh, driver of this uh, Lamborghini put his foot down and off he went. And I was like, the girls are like, Daddy, catch him, catch him. I was like, really? In Hyundai? It's not going to happen. It's a lovely sound. Uh, yeah. I think one of them at one point said, Daddy, would you like one? I said, yeah, it'd be great, wouldn't it? But the truth was, he didn't get anywhere any quicker. And it probably cost him at least £10,000 more just to that journey than it had done for us. So, yeah, a lot of the things that the people have in this life, what really does it get them? Where does it take them? And Solomon is saying, yeah, look, I, I don't want all of that because the danger is if we have so much, we would forget about God or just not be interested. Or if we didn't have enough, then we might blame God. And Solomon said, no, I want to be able to think clearly. I don't want to be colored by those circumstances. Accuse not a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee, and they'll be found guilty. Be careful what you say. Be careful to whom you say it. There's a lot we can unpack in this verse, in all honesty. Because we often make comments about other people, don't we? About whether we think what they're doing is right or wrong. Whether they should or shouldn't do it. 
you know, the Bible says that to our own master we stand or fall, that master being God. So we need to be a little bit cautious because if God is calling people to do things, we need to be a little bit cautious so we don't go accusing them that what they're doing is wrong if they're following God. There is a generation that curses their father and does not bless their mother. How could you imagine? I mean, I just wonder what it was like when Solomon wrote this. What his thoughts were. What about us in the days in which we live? I mean, the world has gone mad, hasn't it? We have children taking parents to court. I mean, it's crazy. There's a generation that curses their father, does not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes. (laughs) And yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords and their jaw teeth as knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. You know, we we talk about following God and the blessings and so on. Well, this really is the flip side because if you choose down that path and say, you know what, I'm going to, I don't want God. I want to make my own choices and I'll see what happens at the end. Okay, fine, but this is what you're going to get because what happens is when you remove God from the equation is people have no accountability, no moral compass, no laws or rules that they're prepared to to follow. And doesn't that sound just like today? Doesn't that sound like the evening standard? I I work up in London, I pick up the evening standard every evening. Uh, And it reads just like this. Every day I'm, I'm reading examples and articles of children that don't respect their parents. Of people that think they're absolutely right in their eyes and why can't they do this? And yet clearly they're not washed from their filthiness. But they don't realize all that's happening is that they're running out of room. But they're getting closer and closer to the day that they will stand before God. And there is a generation, again, how lofty are their eyes? It's just the way sometimes you talk to people. I was having a conversation with somebody very recently about why is it you can talk about anything and people are okay with that. And you can talk about Buddha, you can talk about Islam, you can talk about Allah and all those things now we have to accept and, you know, and all those things are okay. They're kind of accepted conversation. But you mentioned Jesus. Oh, that's not acceptable. Why? And again, that generation whose teeth are as swords. You know, we live in a world that is so cutting. People are so unkind and, and particularly in the, the age we live with, with digital media. I don't really understand or get too involved in, in Twitter book things and all that kind of stuff. And, but, you know, you do read articles, don't you, of these people that have been hounded, that have been driven to the point, sometimes even of suicide, because of the things that other people say about them. I mean, have we ever had a generation like this that it can truly be said whose teeth are as swords? I mean, do we want Elijah growing up with this kind of world around him? Or would we rather shield him from these kind of things and teach him about the things of God? That's a choice. We've, we've got to make that choice. And for any of us with children, you know, sadly, it, it, it goes even just beyond the things that people say. You know, this year, 31 people have been stabbed in London. We're halfway through the year. 31 people have been stabbed and killed in London. And a number of them are just teenagers. 
and it's growing all the time. And then we can start to talk about the number of people who have been shot. And you start talking about the people that have been assaulted or attacked for, I mean, it's just crazy reasons. People that, you know, just, just people on, on bikes and the car driver gets out and they attack them or vice versa. Or, I mean, there's so many things. We regularly hear these things now. We, we're living in a, a generation that just has got no moral compass. And the Bible says exactly this. It says in 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 4, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. I mean, have we ever lived in times more perilous than we do now? I mean, last night it was, it was hot, wasn't it? And we had the front door open. I was, it was quite cunning, really, because I got a, we got a fan, and it had been upstairs, and after a week of it being so hot, I realized all I was doing was blowing hot air around. Um, so really, my, my fan was just a big hairdryer. So I decided, and this was very cunning, to bring the fan downstairs near the front door so it was blowing the cold air in, and that worked. It was great. But Joy a number of times said, oh, you leave the door open. I was like, yeah, yeah. And I was actually sitting in my office. I was kind of right near the door working. But, you know, there is that kind of a little uncomfortable, isn't there, if you leave your front door open now? Some of you will remember a time where you'd go out and you'd leave your house unlocked. And you'd worry about it. But not now. And there was a time that you'd quite happily go out for a walk in the evenings. Now, there's a lot of places you just do not want to go. And I'm not talking about some dodgy, seedy places in London. I'm talking about around this area. There's places you just don't want to go when it starts to get dark. I mean, perilous times really have come. And it says, for men shall be lovers of selfies, or their own selves. Uh, that's exactly where we are, isn't it? I mean, have you ever known a situation where people are just so obsessed with their self-image? Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, wanting what other people have got. You know, the, the new iPhone is going to be released soon, and we sell them through work. Oh, the people that are queuing up already to get this. I know some people that have a, a genuine reason that they want it, but so many people, it's just because someone else has it. I want to have the latest thing. I want to have what they've got. Otherwise, I don't amount to anything. Really? Are we going to teach Elijah? Are we going to teach our children as they grow up that their life consists of the things that they own? The things that they could acquire? Or is their life so much more valuable than that? I'm told that people are going to be boasters. <laughs> We see that. Proud. Blasphemers. I mean, again, how many times do you hear people blaspheming Confucius or Buddha or even Allah? You don't hear people blaspheming those names. Which name is it they blaspheme? Have you ever stopped to think why? Does that not make you think that there could be a spiritual agenda behind all of this? Give me another reason why the name of Jesus Christ is used every single day blasphemously. Why people, when they speak of God, they're not thinking of other gods. They're thinking of the Judeo-Christian God. Now, some of that is a vocabulary thing that's come down from the ages. You know, goodbye came from God be with you. People would give people a blessing as they left. And, of course, those become a, a little bit familiar in our speaking. And, you know, people used to say, God help us. And they would mean, God help us. But now it's just a word. It's just a phrase. Why do people want to use the name of a God who they say doesn't exist? 
doesn't make sense. Disobedient to parents, we've said that already, but this is what Paul said is going to be coming in these last days in which we're now living. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Again, I could refer to the events taking place in London today. Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous than that? You've got people that are wanting to do things that are good, and there are other people that are saying, why are you doing that? Come on. Look at what blessings have come to the world through the church. Now, that's not to say the church has always got it right and there's been lots of things the church has done that have not been good. But you think of hospitals, of education. Where do those things come from? Some of it, yes, from the ancient Greeks and their universities and so on. But the school system, even in this country, really came from the Sunday school model from people wanting to teach their children about God. Most of the universities around the world, in the Western world, started off as Christian establishments. The church just wants to to help. I mean, every time you get a disaster, every time there's a problem, even the the Grenfell Tower, whose doors were being opened? Churches. Not exclusively, but the church is always there. Always trying to do something that's good. And yet the moment we speak about Jesus... traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. This is what Paul says is coming. We we see we're there. Then we're told the horse leech, or the leech, has two daughters. Just a kind of a poetical kind of expression here. Crying, give, give. That's just the way the world is now, isn't it? It's roaring on for those thoughts. And there are three things that are never satisfied. And then Solomon uses this kind of poetical form to express these things. Four things that say it is not enough. The grave, the barren woman, the earth that is not filled with water, and a fire that says it is not enough. All those things just consume, don't they? The grave, let me just just for a moment, because people often speak about God, if God is this wonderful, loving God, the God that we were singing about this morning, then why does he allow, and you can fill in the blank, all sorts of things. Why does God allow disasters? Why does God allow sickness or poverty? Or why does God allow suffering? Jesus came not to solve the problem of poverty, of hunger, because that wasn't man's greatest need. Yes, when Jesus came, he did heal some sick people, but he didn't come to solve the problem of sickness, because that wasn't our greatest need. Jesus didn't come to end all wars. Because that wasn't our biggest problem. Our biggest problem was death. That was the one thing that we all have in common, that we will all face, that is without doubt the biggest problem we all face. And that is the one problem that Jesus came to solve. And Jesus died, was buried, and rose again to overcome the power of death. And now anyone wants to put their faith and trust in Jesus no longer has to fear the grave the eye that mocks at his father and despises, despises to obey his mother the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the young eagles shall eat it not particularly nice is it but this is more than just a, a little bit of poetry that Solomon inserts here because the Bible actually speaks of a time coming of a valley and of birds who are going to eat up the flesh of those who reject God. 
that battle will take place in Israel. As the armies, combined armies of this world unite together to try and destroy Israel. And people many years ago would have mocked and laughed. And then in 1918, there was this decree given that Israel would be given land back. And then 1948, Israel became a nation again. But still people mock and they laugh and they say, well, this wouldn't happen. And now we're living in a situation where the Bible said that Damascus would become a heap of ruins. Two and a half thousand years ago, Damascus is a heap of ruins. Everything that is going on in the Middle East is just a rapid fulfillment of prophecies. And Israel always somehow seemed to be the aggressor. They're always on the wrong side. Even if they're just defending themselves from hundreds of missile attacks on a weekly basis. From those who would like to annihilate them. The UN would rather pass resolution protecting their enemies than they would to protect Israel. Now there is a a time coming that the nations of this world will be united against Israel. And the Bible speaks of this time when many will die in these battles. People who have rejected God, have rejected God's word. And we're told that the birds will will come and feed on the, the flesh of those that have fallen. Interesting though, if you reject God, you will, by default, choose God's enemy. That's the world system that's coming. The Bible speaks of strong delusion that will come and will deceive all the the people of the world. We'll talk about that maybe more some other time. And then we're just given this example. There are three things that are too wonderful for me, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air. Have you ever seen an eagle flying? They're just majestic. What do you notice about an eagle when it flies? It's just got this incredible freedom, hasn't it? It can move any way it wants. It's up, down, it just soars. They're wonderful to look at. If you've ever seen a bird of prey flying, it kind of sticks in the memory. I remember even a couple of years ago, we were down in Bournemouth area and we saw a bird of prey flying. Just majestic things. The way of a serpent on a rock. Now, some of you may have remembered the, the little um, Planet Earth, I think it was, um, by David Attenborough recently. And we had these um, lizards that were trying to make their way from their eggs and the, the sand and things across to the beach. But the problem was with all these snakes in the way. Anybody see that documentary? It was incredible, the way the snakes were just trying to catch the lizards and things. And these snakes were climbing over the rocks. Amazing agility. Not quite like an eagle's, but amazing agility. You see, there's a pattern in these things that Solomon gives you here. The next thing, he says is the way of a ship in the midst of a sea. Now, far less agility. It still has that kind of element of freedom, but actually it's kind of somewhat bound by the direction it's going. You can't just stop and turn around. And the final thing Solomon says is the way of a man with a maid. The way that lust has destroyed so many people's lives. You see, people think they want freedom. And what we see in these four things that are listed is a downward progression of being bound. Not free at all. He goes on and says, such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. You see, we live in a world now that says that, you know what, anything's okay, you can do whatever you want. You know, I, for one, want to protect my daughters from this kind of world. 
And I know that Ash and Laura want to protect Elijah from this kind of world. A world that thinks it has absolutely no accountability. And that people are just objects for pleasure or for whatever gratification we want to derive from them. That's not what the Bible teaches about people. For three things, the earth is disquieted and for four which it cannot bear. For a servant when he reigns, a fool when he is filled with meats. For an odious woman when she is married and a handmaid that is heir to her mistress. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all of these in detail, but lots here again of just things that we look at, it's just not right. There are four things which are little upon the earth, but they're exceedingly wise. And the first one that's given to us is the ants. Did anybody get an infestation of flying ants last week? Yeah? You did? Right. Well, I got a text from Joy. Um, I don't know which day it was now. But it's like, the whole house is full of ants. It's like, no. It wasn't quite that bad. But the, the whole of the back doors and everything else, hundreds of these flying ants had to come in. Pesky little things. So we had an ant pound around everywhere. And then I read this and preparing, I thought, maybe I shouldn't have killed them all. But the ants are a people not strong, and yet they prepare their meats in the summer. They were just doing what they do. I, yes, I would prefer they did it not in my house. But they're incredible, the way they work as a team together. And we're told of the conies, these kind of little rock honey kind of badgers that we have in Israel particularly, uh, are a feeble folk, and yet they make their houses in the rocks. Very industrious, very clever, using whatever resources are there for them. And we're told the locusts have no king, and yet they go forth, all of them, by bands. No particular leadership as such, structure with locusts, and yet they kind of know what they're doing. I mean, we see the same thing with birds. Have you ever seen birds flying? And you think, how are they communicating? Particularly when you get like, like uh, um, sparrows or swallows or whatever, and suddenly they all just change direction. Who was it that shouted, left? You know, they, they just all go and... Well, locusts are similar. They just have this incredible understanding of where they're going. Can I put us all to shame? Because so often we have no clue of our own path through life and navigation. And then we're told that the spider takes hold with her hands and is in king's palaces. And critics say, ah, oh, see, the Bible's wrong because spiders have eight legs. We all know that. Uh, well, no, actually, um, a lot of uh, studies in spiders, um, they actually use what we would consider their front two legs as hands. They use them in a completely different way than they would just for walking. So no, actually the Bible's right. So, But they do. They end up in king's palaces and sometimes in our bedrooms too. And there are three things which go well, yet four that are comely in going. A lion, which is the strongest among beasts and turns not away for any. A greyhound, a he-goat, and a king against whom there is no rising up. Imagine a, a king like that. Can you imagine a a country or a nation that all had a king whom they loved well it's coming because Jesus is going to return he's going to establish his kingdom and it's going to be incredible the Bible speaks about a time of restoration of all things and it's going to get back to the way it was when God created it in the first place and so the chapter just concludes again we have a choice and Solomon says this, that if you've done foolishly in lifting up thyself, you know, in kind of trusting your own wisdom, your own opinion, or if you have thought evil, a little bit of advice Solomon gives. Shh. Just stop. Lay thy hand upon thy mouth. Stop speaking. 
just step back and think. Because it gives a couple of very practical examples. Surely the churning of milk brings forth butter. It does. And the ringing of the nose brings forth blood. I did know somebody once who, when they were challenged about the accuracy of the Bible, used to quote this verse. And says, if you don't believe the Bible's true, let me demonstrate. I'm not suggesting you do that, but... But the ringing of the nose does bring forth blood. And so the forcing of wrath brings forth strife. What does this mean? What's the conclusion here? The Bible says that God is a God who is long-suffering. God is patient. Let's mention that verse earlier from Romans, that it's God's kindness, it's gentleness that leads us to repentance. That's the God that we serve. God doesn't want any of us to face wrath. But you know, there are some people that will force that wrath. And they will force it because they will make a choice of saying, no, I don't want to follow God. I don't want to listen to God. I don't want anything to do with that. It doesn't sit right with me. Because normally it means it will challenge the way you currently live your life. Well, looking at those two options we've looked at and surveyed this morning, looking at so much of that chapter which speaks about the mess of the world... And the problems that we see all around us, well, I'd gladly let that go. To have a life that is, as the Bible says, hidden with Christ in God, protected. As we said earlier, God is a shield to those that put their trust in him. So the end of this chapter just ends with this, okay, time to stop, just to think it through, to consider. You've got a choice as to how you're going to live your life and what you're going to live for. If you choose not to follow God, ultimately you are forcing wrath. And just as the churning of milk will bring forth butter, and just as the ringing of the nose will bring forth blood, if you force God into a position to act as judge, he will. But he wants to act as saviour for you. And as I said, for me and for my house, our decision is very clear. We want to follow God. And we want to bring our children up in the fear and the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. And this morning, Ash and Laura have made that decision on behalf of Elijah, that they want to bring him up. Because looking at these two options, to be honest, I really can't understand why anybody would opt for the world's way of doing things. The choice. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity just to come together to celebrate the dedication of Elijah. Lord, we thank you for him. Lord, we thank you even for his contribution this morning, for his little word that he gave us. Lord, he's just a lovely boy. And we pray you bless him richly every day of his life. Father, again, we ask your blessing upon Ash and Laura. And Father, for each of us, that we would ponder and consider the choice that is set before us. There is a choice. And we each get the chance to make that choice as to how we live. Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to choose you, to choose the God who came to be consumed so that we can have a life protected and shielded by our great God, by our good, good Father. We just thank you for these things now, Lord. Just bless the rest of this day and our fellowship together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.